welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover Two Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover Two podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Ohio is at the forefront of the U.S. opioid epidemic. In 2016 alone, 86% of overdose deaths in the state involved an opioid, a number that's likely to grow without proper treatment intervention and community education. Here today to talk about the role treatment centers play in addressing the negative stigma of substance abuse and spreading education awareness is Kristen Schenker, who's a clinical supervisor at Glen Bay Hospital. So Kristen, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so I'd like to start off today by having you tell us a little bit about your story and how you happen to get into this field. Yes, um, I think through some of my own personal struggles, I came to realize just an incredible role that um, counselors and other helpers can can have in helping somebody change their story. And so as I started to also recognize, you know, that I, like I said earlier, that I kind of have a gift for listening, um, I decided that I wanted to help others in that way and help people along their journey. Um, I'm a licensed social worker and I'm my specialty in Ohio in particular is um, chemical dependency. Um, so I have that certification here. Um, and I, you know, I stumbled into addiction treatment. Um, it was actually something that I avoided for many years. And what I found is that I, I fell in love with the people. And um, I really just found, I mean, sick people getting well. You know, it's people at one of the toughest times in their life. Um, some of the most courageous, some of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with. And um I've gotten the opportunity to watch a lot of people recover, you know? So one of the ways that kind of the disease, I guess you would call it, mm-hmm. resonated with you mm-hmm. was you called it a lack of coping skills that you identified in some of the people that you worked with. Kind yes. of explain that and help me understand that. Yeah. Um, so while we were talking earlier, I think, um, I, as I said before, I really, really believe that addiction is a disease. That's how Glen Bay views it as well. Um, and at the root of that, I've heard addiction described as a lack of coping skills. And so 
many people come and they have never learned how to deal. You know, the phrase in the 12 step programs is deal with life on life's terms. But really, um, it's an opportunity. What we try to do at Glen Bay um, is individualized care so that way people are able to walk out with a toolkit filled with ways to deal with life. And sometimes that's mood disorders or anxiety disorders, uh, dual diagnosis. Sometimes it's learning to deal with grief, uh, stress management, relational issues. So we help them learn how to do that. So let's start at the top in okay. terms of Glen Bay. If I were looking for a facility uh, mm-hmm. for my loved one, mm-hmm. um, why would I come to Glen Bay and what do you have to offer? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I think that makes Glen Bay special um, is that we really, really believe that people need to be treated with dignity and respect. And while we follow a 12-step model, we treat addiction holistically. And that starts with just when you walk into our facility, the serenity you're surrounded with, the ponds, the fountains, the privacy and cleanliness of the rooms, the beautiful paintings on the walls. We want people to have access you know, to full gym services. It's designed so that when they come in, Um, Most people are already filled with hopelessness and despair, and we want to remind them that even if they did some bad things in their addiction, they're not bad people and they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. I mean, there is programming from 8.30 in the morning till 8.30 at night, and that includes everything from a lecture series that's really focused on educating people about addiction, about um, different tools, different coping skills, into multiple therapy groups throughout the day. Um, then we have 12 step meetings, um, and then we also offer specialty groups throughout the week. And so that includes everything from a family program and relapse prevention to non believers group, anxiety management. We have meditation, we have yoga, um, we have pain management groups. So there's and dual diagnosis groups as well. And then we also offer some specialty groups for helping professionals like doctors, nurses, and business professionals. So it's really the treatment that's provided is highly individualized. It is, absolutely. Um, And I think the other piece too, we offer treatment across the continuum of care. So we have five outpatient centers. So we have currently 172 beds. However, as you know, we are expanding. We're uh, building a new facility. We're going to be adding 32 beds and um, kind of restructuring the layout of our main campus here in Rock Creek. And so, as I said, that continuum continuum of care includes um, everything from medical detoxification all the way down to aftercare. Um, and, and some folks, I mean, end up being in aftercare for five years. You know, they voluntarily come once a week for that ongoing support for the companionship that they build with some of the other patients, but also with um, some of the staff. So So let's kind of walk through those components briefly, but I want to particularly focus on the aftercare. Absolutely. And the significance of aftercare. Mm -hmm. So can we start from the top and kind of walk through each of the components and why it's so important to have them all under one umbrella? Yes. Um, So medical detox, one of the barriers for folks who are trying to come off drugs and alcohol is that process of withdrawal. Sometimes that's physical, sometimes it's mental, most times it's a combination of both. And so that medical detox, not only, uh, you know, typically you see better success rates in people being able to uh, 
um, stop the using. But it also kind of allows us to engage them in the treatment process from the beginning. We normalize it. We let them know what post-acute withdrawal is, which I'll touch upon as I move forward. Um, and we start talking to them specifically about uh, naltrexone and Vivitrol. Um, and I know um, that's a really critical piece for us. I would say currently in our inpatient facility, about 50% of our patients are opiate addicts um, or coming there for opiate use disorder of some sort. And so that um, really, really, really with each one of those, we are having the physician assistant, the doctor, the primary counselor, and our pharmacist taking time to educate them about the naltrexone and Vivitrol and what part that could possibly play as another tool in their toolbox. Hmm. Um, so for um, so now we're starting to broach over into medication-assisted treatment yes. and, and into that territory. What percent of them do get involved in Vivitrol? At this point, we are just beginning to track that. Um, rough estimate off the top of my head of the patients who come in for opiate, and, and it is also used for alcohol, So, but mm -hmm. I'm speaking specifically related to um, opioid okay. patients at this time. I would say we get about 70% of them. Mm. Um, and when people are not open to it, we take an active approach, we talk to them about it. Um, because in, in part, it sometimes reflects a step one issue. And by that, I mean, people still believe that somehow they may be able to control or use successfully. They can still dabble. Yeah, they can still dabble. And with this particular substance, especially, you know, we teach about the lethality. We do um, discuss with them the risks. Our patients are very aware of fentanyl and carfentanil. Um, but we still take the time to discuss that and to let them know kind of what's going on um, in the community. They're aware of the high overdose rate at this time. Okay. So mm -hmm. I don't want to take you off yeah. track there. So yes. let's go back to the continuum. Absolutely. So, so kind of inpatient is very intensive. Um, we really hope that people get a basic understanding of the disease. We want to help them kind of identify their high-risk relapse triggers, situations, um, sometimes that means we're taking time to help them better understand their mental health. Sometimes we're helping them place them in sober living, whatever that may be. Usually it's a combination of all of those things um, and helping them begin the process of learning a little bit about abstinence and some tools to achieve that. And then I would say an average stay is around 21 days, although we do offer a program that goes well into 90. And then we also have some options for um, detox only. Um, and then each person develops an individualized discharge plan with their counselor, and that's going to include suggestions for follow-up um, for step-down care. And so um, a large majority of our patients are referred to IOP, which, if you're not familiar, is intensive outpatient. Depending upon state and location, that's usually three to four sessions a week and can include individual and group counseling. So do they have to go there to the facility, or have you incorporated any um, uh, telemedicine into that? Yeah. We have five outpatient centers, okay? And then we also use other agencies. We, we try to find the place that's going to fit the best for the patient. And okay. Sometimes that's us, and sometimes it's another organization. That you're networked what, with. Okay. Yes, so yes. So you make it convenient for them. Oh, yeah. Oh, to yeah. To be physically right to report to someplace in, for In IOP. order to be successful, 
in recovery, whatever format you follow, it needs to be accessible. You need to be able to integrate it into your life. And so a routine where you have to drive two hours for IOP is not realistic. Yes, we want to we want that transition to be smooth and we don't want to create more stress. So the idea is if you have an IOP a mile away from your house and ours is 10, you're going to the one hopefully that's close to you. But that's a decision made with the patient and the counselor. Yeah, so then IOP, um, like I said, usually three to four days a week. It's a little more intensive. I would say maybe the average stay for most IOPs would be somewhere between four to six weeks. That depends on people's needs and what's going on uh, for them in the moment. And then aftercare is a once a week session. And it's really designed as... um, it's still educational, but it also has a maintenance component. It helps you remain connected. It helps with accountability. Um, you know, continued uh, urine screens, continued professional intervention. If for some reason, um, you know, you start to struggle or you're not connecting in your own recovery community, you have that solid meeting once a week. So, okay. so how about addressing all of their needs in mm-hmm. their personal lives, such as transportation, housing, food, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. work? That is all started in inpatient in the residential level of care. So one of the other pieces um, was something that's completed at any level of care, depending upon some people enter through IOP, some people enter through um, detox. So depending upon where they come in, they have a biopsychosocial biopsychosocial assessment completed, which is pretty intensive. Mouthful too. Yes, right? And um, we try to identify any needs related to work, school, um, you know, personal relationships, um, child care, um, any barriers to treatment. And then we try to address all of those before they leave. Um, one option that comes up is sober living. Another one is helping people um, obtain peer support specialists or BCMs, which are blended case managers. There's a lot of resources depending upon what community you're in. We actually have a dedicated discharge coordinator that assists our primary counselors with identifying the the vast array of resources available. Um, Sometimes we help them find sober clubs. We help them find bus routes. We um, set them up with organizations that do help with transportation. I would say about 25% of our patients are from out of state. Um, And so depending upon their location and stuff, we're able to set up those services before they leave. So when you look at their recovery, Mm -hmm. you're involved with them up to five years down the road. So so when you put together that initial plan, that plan has a pretty large planning horizon, I would imagine, up to five years, would you say? Some folks up to five years, yeah. And, and and they're always welcome. I mean, we plan alumni events all over the place at all of our outpatient centers um, in Pittsburgh and in the Cleveland area on a regular basis. So we have comedians come in. Um, we have an annual picnic. We really try to keep people engaged. One of the, the key components of recovery is to have a support system. And we want to be part of that support system in whatever way we can. Mm -hmm. With that staying connected with them Mm -hmm. and that long-range plan, um, I want to ask kind of a difficult question. I want to go back a little ways on this. Um, About five years ago, you had a patient in um, who was from the Columbus area. Mm -hmm. And um, his insurance ran out. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so he was released mm-hmm. and went home and overdosed and lost his life. 
okay. that, that very day. Okay. Um, wow. And his family has been very, very vocal about education and yeah. prevention, and they've done some just unbelievable things. Um, but my question to you, uh, Kristen, is that have the lessons learned from staying connected with them from way back when, have they kind of changed the program to prevent things such as that from happening, whereby we lose loved ones mm -hmm. because of the fact that they go home and boom, they're kind of right back in the old environment and right back into these these just overwhelming triggers that, that just send them to the point where they use, thinking in yeah. their minds that one last, you know, just one time they're going to do it. And that yeah. does literally become their their one last time. Yeah. So. yeah. I'm not, I guess the thing that comes to my mind um, is that the tragedy of this disease is that it is lethal. And, um, you know, since I've worked in, in the chemical dependency field, especially in the last five years, I've, I have personally seen a significant increase in overdose, overdoses, in particular those that resulted in death. And so that's shifted some of the practices, not just at Glen Bay, but at other agencies um, for us, that one of those pieces is making sure that we try to get people involved with the naltrexone and Vivitrol. Um, the other piece of that is... And why is that so important? Explain that to our listeners. Oh, yes. It's critical. Um, so the most generic uh, description of, of what those medications assist with are in part craving. And, in, and the second component is it removes the ability or for yeah. the most part, to get high, to, to experience the euphoria. And so what in particular, um, the Vivitron injection, so that would be every 30 days, okay, versus the oral naltrexone. Um, in particular, that helps in the here and now moment of experiencing a craving or puts a, a block between, right, a pause between the thought of, I could just use it once, right, and then going to do it. And, and in between there, those coping skills I talked about, we're hoping are, they're able to implement. They might be able to reach out to somebody to go to a meeting, talk to a counselor, parent, you know, think through that rationally. So, so that's the one piece that I would say um, not necessarily specifically related to the tragedy that you shared about, but in order to keep people alive, you know. Um, the, the other piece, I think, is... We have a large scholarship fund. We spend a lot of time um, trying to make sure that people are able to stay as long as they need to, with or without insurance. Um, I know I, I've been with Glen Bay for a little over three years at this point. So I know in my time there, um, whenever I go to our CEO and discuss with her, can I please keep this person or they have no insurance, but they're not ready to leave, it's a yes. Um, so I feel confident um, that one of the things that we do is, is we keep people regardless of their ability to pay. Um, I think the other piece um, is, like I discussed, that comprehensive discharge plan and really, really, really trying to get more and more people connected into sober living, whether that be a halfway house or a three-quarter way house. And we involve families um, and reference and case managers and therapists and doctors. We try to bring in all of the patient's supports. So I didn't touch on this earlier, but we have a very comprehensive family program on Sundays. 
Um, and we make sure that we're in contact with the family, I mean, throughout. I've worked with other agencies um, where that wasn't a standard practice, and we really treat this as a family disease and treat this as the support system needs to know what's going on, you know, have a better understanding of addiction and be part of helping motivate them to possibly move or relocate or, you know, go to sober housing, Um or possibly maybe move in with a relative, do something different to get them out of that people, places, and things. So let's move along. At Glen Bay, you follow a 12-step model of recovery yes. with a focus on holistic treatment yes. and continuing care. Yeah. So why more of a focus on 12-step when now mm-hmm. medication-assisted treatment is considered the gold standard? Mm-hmm. I will share my personal and professional uh, opinion on this, if that's okay. Please. Um, So at Glen Bay, not only do we believe in the 12-step model, but we've seen it work. We have a large percentage of staff in recovery. Um, um, It's very effective. It provides tools. It it addresses thinking errors. It teaches coping skills. It gives support systems. It helps people um, gain a better understanding of their inability to control their use. So... um, it's, you know, around the country and accessible, even in multiple languages. Um, so it, it, it's really an effective program when people embrace it. But the other piece is we don't want to see people discharged on drugs that have street value. And um, things like Suboxone in particular have a very high street value. Um, they're very easily abused. So you spend um, a lot of time uh, focusing your energies at Glen Bay on education in the community. Can you describe that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Number one, um, in order to treat a disease, you have to understand it. So, you know, if someone tells me I have diabetes, but I don't know what that means, then it's going to make it very difficult for me to feel well, to, to live, you know, to my best and, and, and treat myself the way I need to. And we view addiction in the same light. We want people to understand it. We also want people to start to recognize um, that the stigma attached to it prevents us from sometimes being able to um, intervene earlier. You know, if we come to the table with my child could never have that then we're not aware of some of the warning signs or the symptoms. Um, or we treat it as a behavioral issue, and, and it's not. Uh, behaviors are part of the symptoms, and symptoms we don't like, you know. And sometimes it's difficult to not experience anger or shame when a symptom is related to stealing or theft or, um, you know, crashing a car. Um, but we really want to educate the community so that they're better able to seek out treatment if they need it, so that they're more open if they have a loved one who's struggling, so that they know how to access it, um, so that they know treatment is available and it's an option, and to tear down the stigma. So, Kristen, this has really been informative. Yeah, good. What, uh, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic and with families in terms of hope? Hope is is something that I hope um, everybody walks out of our treatment facility with because people recover. And and I'm not saying that in a false hope. Um, You know, we mentioned, discussed before that relapse is sometimes part of part of the recovery process. Um, But there is so much hope. (laughs) 
I you believe we got a few. Sorry to jump in. You yeah, probably no. got a success story or two oh to come gosh. to mind when you think about that, and you think about hope, and you think about wow, there's this one. I have so many. I actually, I'm I, flashes of faces are, are kind of coming to me when you ask that, you know, and and you just get goosebumps thinking about. Um, um, I've never found a way. We've never found a way to fully, you know, uh, say that one's going to get it, or he's got it, or she's got it. Um, there's no there's no science to that yet. Um, but um, I just see so many success stories. You know, I worked with a, a kid, I say a kid, you know, 18, uh, a couple of years ago, whose mother was also in active addiction. And um, he, he chose not to go to sober living um, because he was a primary caretaker of another family member in that household. And just... The, the challenges set up, you know, for that person and how really delving into the recovery and, and following those suggestions. I mean, finding uh, an incredible support group. He was able to, you know, remain sober and is doing really well today. And um, it, it, it's incredible. I, we have therapists who were patients, you know, and, and the, um, the magic that occurs when you return to a place where you came at your worst and you come back at your best and now you're walking other people through that journey. So, oh God, yes, there's absolutely hope. And, and the other thing is there's hope. There's hope for us even when our loved ones don't recover. And I say that because, I, I, um, because sometimes, unfortunately, this journey um, does not end in the way you know, that we want it to. And so what I've seen in so many um, is that they find another way to reach other people. You know, I have families um, that still come in and share with family members about um, their their tragedy and their loss, but, but share about how they are able to find happiness and joy in life again, even though they never stop missing their loved one. Um, so I guess I say whatever that journey looks like for anybody, you won't always have to be in the depths of despair, that we can experience joy again, um, even if our loved one, you know, continues to use um, or, or, or leaves us. Um, but the, I guess the, the only other thought that I have, I really, really, really um, am excited about the naltrexone and the vivitrol and i think it's an opportunity to help people stay alive you know and it's an opportunity to help put a pause button um so much of this is related to impulse and the rational thoughts kind of escape people in in that moment and when we talk to patients who have relapsed they can so clearly see it later you know that at that moment it didn't make sense to use heroin one last time um, and so that pause button saves people's lives and it lets them build those coping skills and those supports. Um, and I guess maybe, you know, the, the, last, the last point would be there's help. You know, you can, you can, you can Google anything and, and find um, an organization or an individual that will help you. I mean, you could call AA 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can, there's all different types of recovery options. And so, um, you know, if whatever you're not interested in, there's an option for you that you would be. So try and be open to that. And to find you, how would they do that? Yes. Um, so you can go to glenbay.com uh, um, or you can call us. Our telephone number is 440-563-3400. 
And we'll publish the toll-free yes. number along with this podcast. So, Kristen, I want to thank, thank you, you for your time today. Very Absolutely. informative. All right. Thank you for having me. Okay. We've been joined today by Kristen Schenker, who is a clinical supervisor at Glen Bay Hospital and clearly passionate about what she does and making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.